1: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice a month newsletter. Hello. In February 1853, Augustus de Morgan, professor of mathematics at University College London, drew the last of a series of diagrams illustrating logical syllogisms. At the center of this last one was a face, writes Joan L. Richards, of a calmly alert being. For De Morgan, this image of the human and the divine meeting in logical space was an expression of his aspiration to find a map of reason that encompassed both the human and divine mind. De Morgan was one of a series of fascinating people who shared a family experience and intellectual and spiritual lives. And they are chronicled by Richards in her book, Generations of Reason, a family search for meaning in post-Newtonian England. She describes an all-encompassing pursuit of reason that takes readers into the principal events of English cultural and political history, as well as into some of the rather more obscure corners. Joan L. Richards is Emeritus Professor of History at Brown University, where she served, among other things, as Director of the Program of Sciences, society, and technology. Joan Richards, welcome to Historically Thinking.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: So, um, who were these people? They—it's um, an unusual family in many, many ways, and not least of them is the sort of the line of descent that they shared, which I spent a lot of time. Fortunately, there's a there's a it's a simple family tree, but I spent a lot of time flipping back and forth to it to make sure I got all the connections. So, could you explain that uh, in ways that are intelligible in audio podcast? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think perhaps the easiest way to understand it is to follow how I I discovered it. Yes. So I began interested. I'm a historian of mathematics, so I began with an interest in Augustus De Morgan. And then over time, I came to realize that his wife was a spiritualist. And that seemed to me so strange that I found myself wondering what they had to say to each other over breakfast. Um, <laughs>
1: so, I'm still wondering. So,
0: <laughs> but I, so, so I, I widened my focus to include both of them. So I'd have Augustus and Sophia together. Mm-hmm. And when I did that... Then people said, well, um, you know, if you're going to write this, this history of the two of them, then you'll have to, you'll have to deal with Sophia's husband, uh, Sophia's father. So I said, fine. You know, I, I put in the, the required 10 pages on Sophia's father, but I was in, I'm an American and I, so to do the research, I was making quick trips to England and I was, um, on a quick trip to England and in Cambridge University and I had an extra afternoon. And I, so I said, okay, this is where you're gonna go look at Sophia's father. So I spent the afternoon and um, in a box of family papers of Sophia's father and two things happened. First of all, I fell in love. And secondly, I realized that he was absolutely crucial to both of the DeMorgans, that if I was going to write about the DeMorgans, I had to include uh, William Friend, who was Sophia's father. So I um, I adjusted my thinking, and it took me about five years because I spent most of my time in the 19th century to move into the 18th century and sort of straighten things out with Sophia's father. And then um, just as I was closing that up, Somebody said to me, well, you've got to go to the Dr. Williams Library, which is a library in London that deals with dissent. And William Friend, this father or father-in-law, was a dissenter. So I said, "Okay," But I was pretty clear that I had everything I needed Um, when I went into that library. I didn't. But again, I had an extra afternoon. And so in I went. And I was correct. There was very little William Friend there. And, but having spent all this time getting into the library, I said, well, I better, you know, what else is here? And poked around and fell into a correspondence between um, someone named Blackburn and someone named Lindsay that was the most intense correspondence I think I've ever read as a historian. I was mm. completely blown away. And I realized that Lindsay um, was essentially William Friend's father-in-law. Mm-hmm. Was the, um, was the actual, he was the great uncle of William Friend's wife, but William Friend's wife lived with him as essentially his daughter for 10 years before she married William Friend. And so I began to see a family that was created by older men um, who got together, formed very intense friendships um, because of their agreement about the nature of reason. Mm -hmm. And after about 10 years, those um, friendships were turned into family when the Younger man married the older man's daughter. It's essentially,
1: so, it's so fast, it's a very interesting lineal descent of, of everything, right? Uh, eventually, uh,
0: and and since the daughters or since women were educating their children at home, mm-hmm. this, this was a way that preserved this yes. perception of reason from one generation to the next.
1: And since um, uh, and since for dissenters, I think I'm right, in, in England, and since uh, home education in many ways begins amongst dissenting families uh, right. in England, um, there's this tradition of home education which is very powerfully uh, for the education of both boys and girls and then passing forward all sorts of ideas.
0: Right, right. Yeah. But in a sense, the girls, the boys... Um, are often sent off to school when they're yes. ten or so, but the girls are not. No, so their education is at home, and so by the time they're marriageable age, they are deeply, deeply infused with the um, ideas and values of the family in which they grew up.
1: And, and we see Sophia is right, as the way you started tracing this the thread backwards. Sophia, right. so we'll see, keeps a. Uh, an autobi well, she has a memoir of her husband, but also then of her father. And right. so, the, so it's the women then have the they have the interest, the erudition, the responsibility, the mission to preserve the flame of the of these generations. Right. Um Right That's so, one way to look at yeah, it. so let's let's the, let's let's begin with um I, you, you you divide the book into three sections let me let me pull them up in front of me um you say yeah. divining reason part one defining reason part two and dividing reason part three and I was um trying to solve this puzzle to myself to see how they reflect it. Cause I I, I take them seriously and that you meant them you had serious intent when you, when you wrote those, those, those section heads. So what's, what, what do you mean divining reason? First of all, what's the, what's the big idea there behind that? And let's go to the other two big ideas briefly.
0: Okay. Well, in some sense, divining reason is in many ways, just a pun because that's the um, section in which, this um, commitment to re- to leading a reasoned life is mm-hmm. carried out within the context of the um, at first the Anglican and then the Unitarian Church. the mm-hmm. The characters fall that my characters are what we what I call fallen Anglicans. They all begin in the Anglican Church and then fall or leave the church. So the first section. I call divining reason to um, signal that uh, that the the main action takes place within the church. Um, there's been over you know over time. There's some people who say, well, the English did not have an enlightenment because they and and my answer quickly is, oh yes, they did. You just have to look for it within the church. So that was the first section. The second section called defining reason was a little bit what begins to happen is that the chronology moves through the Napoleon through the French Revolution and the Napoleonic period into the post-Napoleonic period and the very early years of Queen Victoria's reign. And those are that's a huge set of changes that historians usually handled by just not dealing with them. They either work with the 18th century or the 19th century, but don't realize that, hey, there are a lot of people who lived across
1: yeah. that even even the, even the long 18th century sometimes doesn't deal with all of those. If you, Even if you move your 18th right. century, the, the posts all the way out to 1830, you can sometimes right. skip that.
0: So, um, and during that period, what I saw happening was, as the contexts are changing, and um, in particular in my in this book, um, the focus is moving out of the church, as it were, and reason is moving into mathematics and um, and over that time. But also the church is changing considerably, um, and what you're having to do in that period is to def- to define reason as it moves from one place to another. You have to get a better handle on it. Before, in divining reason, there's sort of an aspect of um, not quite intuition, but everybody knows what you're talking about. Whereas in this transitional period, people have to be clear again and again and again what what are the what are the constraints how far can you go how far can you not go mm-hmm. and um majorly try to define it and then the last section which i called dividing reason was in recognition of the deeply gendered world that you find in the world of augustus and sophia in that marriage mm-hmm. they're both totally committed to reason they completely understand each other on that but they also are completely clear that Sophia's world is her world and Augustus' world is his world, and the two meet briefly over the breakfast table, but otherwise not. And um, Or otherwise, it's a very negotiated boundary. Let's mm-hmm. try that. So that's why I called it dividing reason. Um,
1: well- well, that's very nice. We have we have now. Uh, I think listeners have a sense of the traject your argument and the, tra- the trajectory of the argument. Um, it's a very rich book. Um, I, I usually say that because it's usually true. Um, there's <laughs> lot. To, there's just too much to cover in, in, in sixty minutes. So what sure. I want to do what I want to do is I want to I pick out certain beads along this trajectory of that you've just lined out and sort of look at them and then flick flick them back down the the abacus or the 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 necklace. Um the first of these is it, it the the subtitle is what is it post post-newtonian England but in many ways it's it's post-Lockean England. <laughs> um and instead of a a Newtonian revolution you emphasize a Lockean revolution which I like this very much because if I uh I've lost count of how many book inventories in Virginia and South Carolina I found Locke's essay on human understanding. Um it's it is the book of the of the era. So mm-hmm. what did Locke mean for this family and how did the, how does it start this 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 your argument about reason in this family? How does that push it forward or initiate it?
0: Right. Well, in some ways um, just briefly Locke is Newton's um, mouthpiece for an awful lot of people, that Newton <laughs> Newton was, I don't know how many people you know who have read the Principia, but it's rather few. Yeah. Um, whereas Locke's essay concerning un- human understanding, at least you can pretend to read it mm-hmm. without too much trouble. Yeah. Um, so Locke, Locke for me is sort of Newton's mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. And so if you're looking at you know, general treatments of the Age of Reason or the Enlightenment or whatever, they tend to trace themselves back to Locke or Newton and Locke. Um, what makes this group different and what I realized with a shock is that is there, um, what they read was the essay, but they also read The Reasonableness of Christianity, which is a book that um, people don't cite. Um, much when they're talking about the age of reason, so that's particularly English. Um, that's because we're dealing within the church, and the if you look at the reasonableness of Christianity, then you're going to get a an interpretation of reason that helps you presumably to read the Bible in a reasoned way, and that's that's what has this profound impact on the members of this family, is that if you read the Bible the way Locke wants you to, which means, first of all, you only read, or you you read the the four Gospels and Acts, which are where Jesus actually appears, and you focus primarily, if not unique, um, you focus mostly on what Jesus said, and that's his religion and you create your religion from that, um, you get a very different picture of Christianity than than most people have or had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's the program um, that uh, leads Lindsay in the long run to leave the Anglican Church. It leads Friend to leave the Anglican Church. Both of them learn about reason at Cambridge, and the way they interpret it it forces them out of the Anglican church. So it's a pretty important, um, it's, it's a driver.
1: It's a very, it's very interesting because obviously um, they're not the only people reading at Locke on the reasonableness right. of Christianity. Thomas Jefferson's right. Bible is basically yep. that principle of Locke's taken right. with scissors and, and glue, but so's the red letter Bible. You know, where all the Jesus exactly. words of Jesus are in red. So what I see, exactly. I always see from, from Locke coming out is a very interesting, I mean, and, and Locke is equally influential in creating other Unitarians like himself and like Newton, um, but he's also influential in English evangelicals who are part of the Great Awakening. Uh, Isaac yeah. Watts is very influenced by the reasonableness of Christianity, and he's extremely right. Trinitarian. Right. Um, so you have a strange way in which um, and we have to, we're we talking about Unitarians in the 18th century and even the 19th century. It's a very different kettle right. of fish than the people up the street of the Thomas Jefferson Unitarian Church for me, or the people the, the Absolutely. Nice lady that nicely that owns Atlas Coffee down the street. Um, right. it, it's, um, there's a very strange fundamentalist. I, 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 I don't know what else to call it. But yep. you see like Abigail Adams will say the Trinity is not reasonable. And it's also if it, there's no Trinity in the New Testament. Yep. which is a very odd kind of fundamentalist way of looking at things. There's no, she's not, do you see what I mean? It's a very interesting oh, connection yeah. point.
0: Well, the, the part of the trick, um, and this becomes important at, later in the book, is that you have a view of history, which is cyclical at best. It's mm-hmm. like Ecclesiastes. So, um, so you cannot have, if you're going to have the Trinity, you've got to wait until the Council of Nicaea, Mm -hmm. which is four centuries after Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now, to to allow that to be legitimate, you have to believe in some kind of historical progress or historical change. If you don't, and this is part of what the Unitarians take from Locke, whether not everybody does, but they do, then they say, look, I'm reading Jesus. Jesus never says he's God. He says he's the son of God, but that's different. Yes. He never talks about the Trinity; um, it's not there, and so, and that's where you have to go. You can't change that ever, mm-hmm. and so it's absolutely fundamentalist. But it's tied up with this completely um, circular or static view of history, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, which is again, it's part of this whole tradition.
1: So in um, this in this first sort of generation of Anglicans who are deeply influenced by Locke, um this is uh, Francis Blackburn and then his yeah. protege, Theophilus Lindsay. Um we should just give some dates. Uh Blackburn, Francis Blackburn's born in seventeen oh five and uh Theophilus Lindsay is born in seventeen twenty three. I have the book in front of me, so I think I think that I memorized them. It's not true. Um, But are are they are they mathematicians? Are they at all interested in mathematical logic of any of uh, in any way?
0: Not particularly. The trick is that um, Newton obviously was a mathematician, and and um, at Cambridge in the eighteenth century, there's some sense of. Um, that Cambridge has this very important person connected to them. And Newton himself saw what he was doing in creating this mathematical vision of the universe, if you like, or the solar system, certainly, was he had succeeded essentially in reading the mind of God. And um, so to... and, And the trick is... That in this one small area, cosmology, if you have managed to actually see the way God designed the universe, mm-hmm. then that can serve as sort of a touchstone in the rest of life. When you're struggling to see this, this or that, or the other <clears throat> thing, if you if you know what it feels like to really know, yeah. then perhaps you'll you know perhaps you'll do better when two neighbors are arguing over this or that. Um, to to have a sense of this,
1: that's uh, so, that, that's something we overlook when we talk about the sort of the mechanization, the old uh, cliche, the mechanization of the world picture. Um, there right. are plenty of sciences throughout the 18th century. Everyone wants their area of focus to become Newtonian to be develop a exactly. science of it, right? But exactly. what we don't think of is what you what I began the book with is is the idea of the an ecstatic spiritual understanding of what that means is that you will somehow find the face of God there looking at you and realize that you are thinking the thoughts of God after God. Um, Yes. And that also drives Or with God. Or with God. Or with God. And that drives so many people as well. Yep.
0: And so in the 18th century, you will find that anybody who went to Cambridge learned um, the first, read about the first book of Newton. So you have to learn quite a bit of mathematics to get there. And so the mathematical education um, is, and it's growing throughout the 18th century. Um, so all of these people learn more or less mathematics as part of their education to become Anglican ministers, which seems a little odd, but that's the way of it. Mm-hmm. And so um, I can't remember quite what we started with, no, but, I yes, don't, but they and all then have a mathematical education.
1: And then, as Anglican ministers, depending on how careful they are to in their care of souls and writing sermons, they can have a lot of time to observe stars and bugs and leaves, and you know, come up with theorems or, right. percussion, or percussion caps, I guess, as one uh, one Scottish minister did. Um, right, th- you have that. You have that ability. Um, so let's move forward then this is uh to let's talk about a little bit more about this conversion to unitarianism when per, approximately does that happen and because and 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 then what's the unitarian the unitarian world into which they enter we have to should explain that for um for for listeners uh what it means to be unitarian in mid-18th century england because it's it's intellectually and spiritually exciting, but it can be kind of grim, uh, socially. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Um, I am I am not good at these things, so I can't tell you the exact date. Yeah. That, see, once um, again,
1: we've so, proved that historians can't remember dates even from their own books. I certainly can't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So we'll, we'll make it uh, the mid-1770s. Okay. And you say the world of Unitarianism, the trick is that Theophilus Lindsay, who's the the first or second character in this book, is the man who left the church, went to London, put up a sign and said, I'm a Unitarian. (laughs) And this was, first of all, um, all but illegal. There were real laws against leaving the church. If you're an Anglican minister, it's a position of privilege and power. And you you don't just walk away from that. Mm-hmm. So it's a blamable move. And in the case of my characters, ex- later on, friend is going to get in trouble. But Lindsay doesn't simply or not simply. Uh, he doesn't because he's too socially. He's too high up on the social ladder. Yeah. They're, they're not really going to go for Theophilus Lindsay. But you lose everything. You can't. Um, dissenters are tolerated um, mm-hmm. but otherwise you can't you can't vote you can't hold public office if he were young enough and wanted to go to the universities you can't go to the universities um, you're a real outcast mm-hmm. so for him to leave the church is to leave respectability mm-hmm. and become an outcast and to um, in the event he succeeded and by which I mean he could both get enough people to support him that he could live. He had a wife, he was responsible for this woman and she was a tough cookie. So she wasn't whining, but, um, she, he did have responsibilities. She couldn't earn money. That's not something women could do. Um, and many of his friends said, Look, sweetie, we've been listening to you for a long time. We, we think you're great, but we're certainly not following you in that direction. Um, so it's, it's to become um, an outcast. It's to, um, and then, but Lindsay was very successful. He was, he was a charismatic, warm figure. People, people came around him. And so he could found, he created. This little community around him in London formed either of fallen Anglicans. His brother-in-law joined him. Various other people joined him. And in the long run, William Friend joined him, Sophia's father-in-law.
1: And he's part Uh, of a group of people along with uh, Richard Price. Uh, yep. and Joseph Priestley, uh, yep. who are famous both for well Priestley for his own scientific uh investigations, but Richard Price famous in America for being a supporter of the American Revolution. Because right. not surprisingly, um Unitarians tend to then be politically radical, given what yep. they face in the in the in Britain, they're gonna become political radicals and uh, I, I'm sure it's yes. The Adams, when they when John Adams becomes ambassador to England, they're frequent guests at the Price House, and they and so the Adams and and also they become Unitarians. They're probably the great Unitarian moment right. in New England Congregationalism through this influence. Right. So everyone's everyone's sort of coming together here. Um,
0: and at what, the very beginning, Benjamin Franklin is a very is is one of the first people in Lindsay's church yeah yeah but the yeah. group you're describing briefly, they're dissenters, Yes. and so for them to be on the outside is not as uncomfortable <laughs> as it is for somebody like Lindsay my, my, but yeah. anyway
1: I mean in other words, you mean they've grown up as dissenters yes, yes, and they're used to it by now um, they but, like it, actually yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah but Lindsay, has been he's been he's been of the established church right and it, with all that that all that means and now he has to give exactly. up the establishment um so let's talk uh, briefly about the 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 test acts and uh, repealing the test acts because this is sort of their moment and then the reactionary backlash and then what what comes right after that this is um I, for some reason this this was fascinating to me um the if you, could you this is, is relates to their own um their attempt to make a space for dissent in right. in in britain Yep.
0: So there are a series of um, laws which make it more or less illegal to do things like drop out of the church or um, the, the what are known as the Test Incorporation Acts are um, the acts that specifically confine what dissenters can do. And during the 1780s, um, the Unitarians, with a number of dissenters, um, try to repeal them throughout the 1780s, and in, and they fail. Um, but they're getting better. You know, they're mm-hmm. getting closer as, as time goes by. And the the reasoning they're using, interestingly, is this same kind of reasoning that they're applying to the Bible. In mm-hmm. other words, they're trying to go back to the original, whether it's people who are actually studying, um, you know, the very first very, very early English history and, you know, reading Chaucer or even before to try and find out what's the pure form of English democracy or English government. Later um, you get a somewhat later group who are just reading circularly, trying to get before the test incorporation acts are are passed, that that's the pure basis. So there's a real effort to do that by reading the law and historical documents the same way that they are reading the bible which is very closely and carefully um, mm. so that's that's that repealing thing but it goes down um hard with the french revolution
1: yeah could you explain that so they're they're having some success in the 1780s and then along comes 1789 well then things get yeah. a lot worse after that Then the French Revolution So what's the is, is that because Was there already a reaction There was certainly There was opposition to repealing the test acts But, right. was, but then the reaction really comes when 1789 or
0: 1793 um, It builds between 1789 to 17, um, 1793 mm-hmm. When the English killed their king mm-hmm. I mean the, the French, French killed their king yeah. And the yeah. English are afraid that if they go, you know, if they take those people who are supporters of the French Revolution, like Lindsay, um, mm-hmm. like the Unitarians, um, that if you move in that direction, then that's you're going to kill the English king, and that's treason. Mm-hmm. And so starting in 1793, the issue is no longer the Test Incorporation Acts. The issue is treason, mm-hmm. and that's when William Friend, Gets tried and banished from Cambridge, and that's when um, when he goes to London. Uh, being banished from Cambridge is uncomfortable, but it's nothing like being um, uh, tried for treason, yeah. which is happening in London. And so, they the the London treason trials um, they manage. <laughs> The, the defendants win and they're let off, mm-hmm. but, the, um, but the mood is really scary. That's when Priestley flees England to come to America mm-hmm. because he's afraid for his life and he's afraid for his children. Mm-hmm. And um, so Friend um, stays. Lindsay, Lindsay, by this time, is getting on. And um, so it's Friend who's the transition. Who okay. figures out how, how to move through this?
1: One interesting falling out, which you just touch on briefly, yeah. is that uh, prior to 1775, or even prior to, 17, prior to 1789, yeah. one of the supporters is Edmund Burke, who is in favor yes. of Catholic emancipation. Um, yeah. he's, he's a Whig, he's a liberal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what's fascinating, of course, is is they're all, and of course, and then much to everyone's shock, he writes against. Richard Price, who should be his ally, when Richard Price yep. celebrates the French Revolution, Burke is, says, uh, "Hold on, not so fast." In in very long sentences and ornate words, which we still read as reflections in Revolution France. Um, yep. Much to everyone's shock, Burke turns out to be right. But you make an interesting point uh, about why they found um, they they found Burke's prose antithetical. There's his style antithetical to their Lockeanism could you could you explain that?
0: Well, Burke, um, Burke was a terrific uh, speaker, and yeah. he he had a way. He 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 developed these long, um, elaborate sentences which went on and on about things like honor and um, all sorts of other ideas. Which, when you try to pin them down, define them, um, are, just sort of go mushy and that's part of the power that's the emotional power of of Burke speaking but it drove these unitarians crazy <laughs> because they would say let's let's get some clear and distinct ideas let's tell me exactly what you're talking about
1: well, it was, it was okay when agree saying, with him <laughs>
0: right and burke was saying essentially that's not how people think yeah um we you know he's using concepts like beauty and Sublime um, famously yeah the sublime and this kind of stuff and this is driving the Unitarians mad they're just I want to know exactly what you're talking about be clear
1: what I found and, what I found interesting about that because that looks forward. Because Burke is in, in many ways is a transitional figure. I mean, he's pointing forward yep. to the Romantics as much as anything else, uh, and, Absolutely. To the, and to the and to the difficulty that Friend and 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 then Augustus de Morgan will have in trying to bring reason into the into the nineteenth century. Right, as yep. it, yeah, um, definitely. So let's talk about we'll go back to Friend. Um, can you briefly describe his trial in uh, in? It's F R E N D William Friend. Uh, he has a tra- he has a trial in Cambridge for what, and then how does he make his way in uh, in a London which is antithetical to him and everyone like him?
0: Right. Well, his trial. Um, he he wrote a pamphlet in which um, it's sort of nerve wracking. If, <sighs> if if never I mean... do that, and his goal. His His pamphlet, if you read it today, is very um moderate. he's basically saying, "Look, this country of ours is divided into these you know these two groups they're the people who support the revolution and those who don't um, and really, we should all get together and talk through our differences and they're not that bad and we're all part- you know we're all Englishmen, and we all should love each other and um it it came out just as the english were killing their king the french were killing their king <laughs> and so his his support for both sides quickly devolved into support for the bad side for the for the side of people who were in support of the french revolution and so cambridge university was in a position where they as a university were feeling pressure to show their allegiance to the King and the easy way to do it, or the, a straightforward way to do it was to go for William Friend hard, which they did. And so they set up this kangaroo court. I mean, it's absolutely laughable. Um, and the only, uh, the only legal leg they had to stand on, if you like, is the is heresy, because uh, Cambridge was an Anglican institution. So they threw they convicted him of heresy. Well, he'd been living among them as a Unitarian for seven mm-hmm. years. By that time, it was hardly a problem. but, um, but they made it a problem. Mm-hmm. And then he found himself in, in London. Um, essentially the, the interesting thing is that he was a fellow at a Cambridge college and that's a lifetime appointment. So they couldn't stop that. Hmm. So he, he lived on his stipend, essentially a graduate student, you know, a graduate student stipend, um, lived in London, had to negotiate these treason trials, which was pretty nerve wracking because he was certainly next, (laughs) next up if those people had been convicted, but they weren't, so that was good. And he was a very stubborn man, but so he kept, you know, he kept um, making his points until um, things really got um, problematic in, in England and they passed some very, very draconian laws about dissent, about um, against the government, mm-hmm. about you know what would happen to you if you spoke against it and even william friend realized that he'd better hush and that's where this defining reason comes in because he's not going to give up his ideas of reason but he moves them out of theology and out of politics and into mathematics where he does this bizarre thing of deciding negative numbers are not reasonable. So if you try to do algebra without negative numbers, you're in trouble. But that was his, that was his signature issue. And also, he moves into astronomy and essentially natural theology. Um, and so those, those, are the, those are neutral things that he can do and does
1: do. And becomes a publishing sensation. Um, yes, any author yeah. must be envious of his entire scheme for this thing, that, this series called Evening Amusements, in which, in pre- in anticipating what textbook publishers will do in the 21st century, he comes out with a new edition every year um, to build <laughs> upon previous success, and they all sell. It's amazing. He he must it's make a packet from that. So could you just, could you describe what he's what he's doing with evening amusements?
0: Well, each um each year he comes out with a book in which you can follow month by month what's going to be happening in the um in the stars. You know, Jupiter is going to be rising and Saturn is going to be falling. And he's at the same time teaching uh, mothers and their children um, how to he's teaching astronomy he's teaching you how to draw you know create models of the solar system using hmm. things you can find in a um, in a sewing kit he's um, using everyday objects using you know hold an orange and then do this with it and that with it and um It's terrifically successful. They're very, um, they're fun to read. Mm -hmm. And the other thing for somebody like me, a historian looking at them, is that every, they they begin with an introduction and they close with a conclusion. And then they have this sort of set thing that goes through. But in his introduction, particularly, usually the introductions, he comments on the world he's living in. (laughs) <laughs> and what think you know what's happening and what's up doc and um so you can watch watch him thinking and uh, you know and this is going through a very difficult time and we're we're talking about england in the napoleonic period they're under a lot of pressure mm-hmm. and friend sees it's not just the stars he sees god in the stars so he finds reassurance in the stars this, and, and um, this is his it's natural sort of sweet
1: this is his sermons on natural theology, are sort of then blended, and incorporated into this, right? Um, so it's fun. Na- Napoleon, he uh, for for many of his comrades, uh, comrades in the movement, um, yeah. they he becomes a dangerous reactionary, uh, yeah, b- because he sees Napoleon after 1805, 18, well certainly after eighteen oh five even, uh, and yeah. then later as all of Europe with the exception of Sweden. Is turned against Britain. Um, he sees this as a uh, danger of national survival. Uh, it's a question of national survival.
0: Yeah, and that's true for. I mean, it's a very, very scary time in England, and um, there's no, uh, <laughs> there are no two ways about it. And uh, he certainly he's ambivalent about Napoleon. Um, he certainly doesn't want Napoleon conquering England. Um, at the same time, the trick with Napoleon is that uh, Napoleon is is an enlightened character. As in, throughout <laughs> his reign, he spent more on education than he did on the army. Most people don't know that. Um, William Friend recognizes that. So while he's watching Napoleon in in Spain and so forth, he's he's very conflicted because he <laughs> wants Napoleon to educate Spanish. Um, but at the same time, he's kind of, and so it's a very uh, tricky, tricky period to watch.
1: Um, let's talk about uh, how this fa- these families came to be. And one of them is through late marriage, uh, is yep. uh, older men, disciples, uh, younger men who are still somewhat older by that time, by the time they get married, who are disciples yep. of older men, even older men, marrying young women. Um, yep. And this pattern repeats itself, I think. Every, yeah, just about every, every generation, every generation. Every generation. Yep. So, yep. And, as, and it's the women that hold together this line of descent. So um, yep. ooh, many questions about this. Uh, who are they? I mean, and yep. um, I'm also very curious about, as you look at this line of descent, do you see a, a, a changing conception that they, they have a, a changing conception of what it means to be a woman uh, in throughout this, this, this history?
0: Yeah. Um, the, the, first of all, the trick is these women are very different, one from the other, which is sort of fun. Yeah, it is. Um, the, <laughs> <really> fun the, <laughs> the other trick is it is hard to find out about women because they have a way of erasing themselves on purpose. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the first generation, we're dealing with Hannah Lindsay, who, um, or Hannah... Blackburn's daughter or stepdaughter Hannah and she is a really really strong woman and Blackburn her father educated her very well and part of these educations are to tell these women that they are they are reasoning creatures they are to be respected um, and they are as good as they come so it's they have a huge amount of self- esteem, self-respect. Um, it's hard to make them, you know, cringe Mm -hmm. and Hannah Lindsay. Um, I don't have that very, very much information about her. And what I do have is often negative as in Lindsay's friends found her very irritating because he was so warm and, and loving and, you know, and charismatic and Hannah had a way of saying, wait a second, we've got to get everything straight. Have you swept under the table? Have, do we have the money for this? Can we do this? Or um, we do have the money for this, and I'm making sure that we're going to spend it properly, and we've got to you know, do X, Y, and Z, so you can't do that because this is what we're doing. Um, and oddly enough, they found her very irritating. I I look at this dynamic and find it rather intriguing. Yeah. Um I think she was I think she she said of herself, I have been a more useful than lovable person. Oh. And that's, I think
1: that, that's I think kind of,
0: she's right. <laughs> and it's that, sort of go.
1: Yeah. That, no, I'm just thinking when you read something like that that sort of that uh self-knowledge is always poignant. However long ago it was written, but that's, that's, it's a little sad too.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but you can see the other side of her when her niece who is his Sarah, um, this is Blackburn's granddaughter and Sarah, uh, Hannah's niece comes to stay with them in London and she's 16 years old and she's shy Um, what Hannah says, I love it is she speaks her mind slowly (laughs) Uh, and this 16 year old girl comes from North Yorkshire where she's lived, you know, in a tiny little town. And I don't quite know why they sent her to London except perhaps to get married, but she, um, or actually there, there are family reasons that that happens. Sorry about the phone. Um, but she, um, Hannah, loves her, and and takes her in, and is so warm and loving.
1: Okay, okay. So they take in uh, Sarah, uh, and they and she becomes essentially their adopted child in many ways, not yes. legally, but yes. in point of fact. Yes.
0: Yeah. And the 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 warmth that you can see, Hannah extending to this shy, awkward little girl is very, um, is very moving. And so the image of Hannah as crisp and blah, 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 it begins to melt (laughs) when you see her with, um, Sarah, then Sarah is a very different person. Sarah is very quiet, shy. She stays at home. It's really hard to find out things about Sarah. Um, except you know clearly uh, a mainstay when her sing- when her children get sick there's sarah um sarah sarah's a very strong mother but she's a mother and that's it she doesn't you don't find her
1: opinions and she and william and- friend mary in 1807 uh, right. when when he's begun this new life in london Writing evening amusements, this is, um, does he have to give up his fellowship at that time when he gets married? Is that, is, yes. it, is yes. it conditional? And the, yeah.
0: But, but he can do it not because of evening amusements, but because mm. he gets a job at an insurance company.
1: Oh, that's right. That's right. As an
0: actuary. And, and, and that's, yeah. that's, that allows him. And the minute he can do that, he gets married. He, he would have liked to be married decades before, but mm. he didn't have the wherewithal to do it. Um, And so, so Sarah is considerably younger than he is, but he, the minute he can get married, he's married.
1: (laughs) And then their daughter, Sophia, is where we sort of, where you sort of began, we began this conversation and we began your interests because she is very voluble and very talkative, yep. and yep. we know a lot about her interests. So describe her, because I, I love Sophia. She's one of my favorite characters right. in the book. I mean, <laughs> mad, but one of my favorite characters.
0: <laughs> Sophia is raised by William Friend. He's her first daughter, and so, as often happens with first children, he pours himself into his daughter. And she she's very smart and very well-read. Um, but the trick is, what I've realized... She she never goes to school of any kind, which is typical. Um, he he teaches her all the things he thinks are important. Um, she can she teaches her Hebrew. He, te- he teaches her Latin. He teaches her Greek. He teaches her mathematics. He teaches her astronomy. Um, so she has a smattering of all of that, but she never. But by never going to school, she's never forced to. She's never up against that horrible moment where you write a paper and you get a B minus. Mm-hmm. Um, she, never, she never gets sort of punched down. Yeah. So she's very, very self-confident and, um, and very clear that as a woman, she lives in a woman's world. And this is something that changes in the 1790s when William Friend is in London. The radical women he's with are people like Mary Wollstonecraft or Mary Hayes, who have who who want women and men to live in the same world and see them as equal. But by the eighteen thirties, there's a different model and among radical women, in which you have separate spheres. And that's the world Sophia lives in. She's yeah, we happy.
1: To, we have to emphasize you know, that Sophia time. is no less radical in her own way than the previous generation. But she, yeah. they, there's a there's this idea of spheres has now. She's been adopted that or made that yeah. her own. Um, so let's talk. That, yeah, go. It, it, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. So the um, she marries uh, Augustus de Morgan. So let's um. Briefly talk about him because we started out uh, uh, there as well, no. and then I really want to get to this: her interests in phrenology, mesmerism, and spiritualism, <laughs> where that that oh. sort of question that you began uh, with, because he right. is not the kind of person who's in- interested in such things himself. It, it wasn't <laughs> okay. discussions of mesmerism that attracted each they, them to each other.
0: No. <laughs> so he's Augustus de Morgan comes mm. into the friend household. After he's finished Cambridge, and by this time, this mathematical element of Cambridge has grown beyond the beyond. Cambridge as a university has has expanded threefold or so, and their their um, and mathematics is a very very effective subject for ranking students for um, for writing tests. All of these things go into effect. And so mathematics becomes more and more and more important because it's a way for the university to say who's the best in the class and who's the worst in the class. When there are only 50 in the class, you can do that by chatting. But when they're two hundred and fifty, you've got to give them a yes, test. That's
1: a beautiful and, point. That's like where classics and mathematics are the best because if they can translate Homer into Latin, uh, or or or, uh, or poetry into or Alexander Pope into Attic Greek, and they right. can pass the mathematics test, then they get a double first, and they're obviously the smartest of the smart or something like right, that. right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: So so by the time Augustus is in Cambridge, he he does this mathematical curriculum and um but again always mathematics is the heart of uh ministerial education of a liberal education it's not seen as a profession at all right um and he uh, he comes into the friend household and um gets i think as far as i can tell essentially converted by william friend to being a unitarian he he doesn't finish. He finishes fourth at Cambridge, and he takes that as a body blow, <laughs> and um, hates Cambridge from then on, and hates the Cambridge education. And um, William Friend picks him up at that very vulnerable moment and says, "Oh, I hate Cambridge too because of Anglicanism." And and De Morgan says, "Fine, you know, I'll go with you on that." Um, and he, De Morgan, ends up as the professor of mathematics at the Secular University of London, which is a brand new university, now UCL. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and, but what he's doing as he's teaching mathematics is teaching young men to reason. That's, that's why he's teaching them math. They're not going mm-hmm. to go on and get a degree in engineering. That's not what's going on. Um, so, mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: go and before we go back to Sophia um he yep. has august uh, augustus and morgan as an incredible visual imagination and wit. I mean, you have these caricatures that he does, which are fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and his schoolboy yeah. caricatures, are just the best. He could have made a great living. I think he could have made a great living as a caricaturist. Uh, and and oh yes, yeah. at the time, absolutely. People would have people would have res- responded to. It. He's another Gilray or R- Rollinson, just sort of. But he's also a mathematician. So there's a very fascinating visual imagination that he has. That, that then yeah. you see, it's not surprising then that when he started to draw a lot when he is working on the mathematics of logic he starts to develop these extraordinarily complex diagrams because that's the way somehow he thinks Uh, it's it's fascinating
0: it's fascinating particularly since he's all but blind so how (laughs) this visual imagination works is to me a fascinating question but yes, yes any piece of paper in front of augustus de morgan is covered with drawings within 15 minutes. He's, he's, he's a doodler. It's always, all the time. And when I doodle, it's a sad little flower in the corner. And he's just fantastic
1: um, uh, at what he can do. He's got like this. Uh, I'm just like on page two twenty nine. Discordance between theory and practice. Saint Newton and Saint Flamstead, and he has you know Isaac Newton and John Flamstead, the astronomer facing off. You know, you know, in a bare knuckle boxing style. Um, it's just this. It this it it it's full of them. His papers are full of stuff like that, right? Yeah, um,
0: absolutely. My so, problem.
1: Yeah. I'll well,
0: go. N- was when I put this book together was during COVID. So the libraries were closed. So I couldn't get permission to publish images. It would have had five times as many <laughs> images because De Morgan was just an outflow, but I couldn't get them.
1: So can we, um, so, so Sophia, what okay. in the world is the phrenology? Where's the mesmerism? Where's all this come from? What's all that about? I mean, one, okay. I mean, it, people are going to say, isn't that strange that uh, people believe that uh, that's kind of combined together? I don't necessarily find it strange. Um, early 20th century progressives combined all sorts of horrible things along with noble things. They, you know, believed in recall elections and eugenics uh, and, you know, scientific racism and uh, w- and rights for women. The, all sorts of things can get mixed together in the, in the stew. Um, yep. but I guess yep. that... I guess that's the only thing that's, is that, that what's going on with Sophia? Does she find phrenology and mesmerism investigations of the possible rational?
0: Yes. Um,
1: basically
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sophia, if Sophia's interested in the mind, she's mm-hmm. interested in, but early on the other feature of looking at people is you begin to see what their lives are like. And Sophia's life, like most um, people in the 19th century, but people die. Mm -hmm. And so she loses her brother. Well, he was very disabled, so that was not particularly unexpected. But when her sister Harriet, who was on the order of 23, and a perfectly healthy, happy young woman, and all of a sudden she gets sick and dies, and nobody knows nobody knows why um it just happens mm-hmm. and that's and that sets sophia off to try to she she's not going to let harriet go and so she has to find out how she she needs to know about life after death she needs to know where harriet has gone she needs to know how to talk to harriet um these are these gnaw at her, and um, she. Uh, it isn't until um, a couple of decades later that she starts talking to mediums. But in between, she's she's convinced she's sure that women, and she's a woman, have particular. They're empathetic. They understand each other on, or they understand people on a particularly deep level that she's determined to find out about. Mm -hmm. And so phrenology, which promises that if you, you know, if you look at people's faces, you can find out who they really are Mm -hmm. is, is, is extraordinarily enticing. She, she, that's something great. And when you come to something like mesmerism, if you look at the medical situation in England at the time, faced with and and there's one episode in the book where one of her children who's about a year and a half gets terribly sick and you know he he gets a fever well what do you do and what they do I've realized it it it's almost like chemotherapy I mean they they starve him and they bleed him and they put they blister him and they they just attack him and by the time he emerges from this, you, you read about it and you just say, how did the child survive? Um, he's a living skeleton. He can barely walk because he's been starved. He's, you know, he's a total wreck. And, and he does come back. I mean, it all turns out fine. But as a treatment, it is devastating to watch or to read about for me. And you compare that. To what the mesmerics promise, which is if you just um, you know, brush your hands in a certain way, whatever, that it will somehow all work, it's infinitely more attractive. Hmm. And Sophia, one of the things that I like about her is that she's, she is such a literalist and she's such a realist and she's such a reasoning person that she never claims that she can do these things. She's always saying, "I can't do it. I can't you know it doesn't work for me but other but she watches other people do it, and finds um, and tries to analyze it, tries to understand it um she's She drives me nuts. I'm glad she you like
1: her.
0: <laughs> but uh, you can certainly see her working this and trying to bring this program of reason, which is developed in mathematics and theology, and, um, you know, all of these masculine subjects. Mm -hmm. And she brings it to the world of her neighbors and her children and um, trying to read them reasonably. And it's it's a fascinating and strange amalgam (laughs) that she comes up with.
1: Yeah, yeah. But it it makes internal sense. It makes it. It's coherent. It makes
0: internal sense. Yeah, yeah. I think it is coherent.
1: M- meanwhile, uh, her husband is, as you say, trying to develop quote a logic adequate to human reason. Now, this gets there are there are tables involved. I have to uh, uh, warn you. So this is very difficult to express in, in, in speaking. But um, briefly, what do you mean by a logic adequate to human reason? And I think you you had told me before we started recording. How um, I I I realized how different this must be than modern logic, and what you I, and I I pitied you for having to try to learn what these tables meant in his logic, because <laughs> it's a it's a completely different universe of thought, just of our galaxy of thought. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, one What's way. It- Um, to think about this. First of all, he's using what's called syllogistic logic. Logic comes from Aristotle. And so the the standard one is all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. So you take that form, and that's the basic form that Augustus is working with, which was developed throughout the Middle Ages as logic. And so what he's inherited is a um, an extremely um, <laughs> nitpicky uh, form of reasoning, which is called logic. And what he is trying to do is to make it adequate to all of human reason. And on the one hand, you sort of say, "Well, sure, you know, I'm lo- I think logically all the time," but no, you don't. You don't think like an Aristotelian logician. So, for example. One of De Morgan's earliest examples, which I find fun, is that um, so everything that we that we say is either logical or meaningless. So here's a sentence: If he should come tomorrow, he will probably stay until Monday. Well, trying to put that into the form of. All men are mortal, Socrates. Man, I mean, it's it's very difficult to do, but De Morgan puts it into um, he's trying to divide it into these the subject, the copula or the verb, which always has to be the verb to be, and the object, and he changes that into the happening of his arrival tomorrow. That's the subject. The verb is is and the object is an event from which it may be inferred as probable that he will stay until Monday. Well, I, I don't know about you, but that's not very persuasive to me as a way to understand that sentence.
1: But that's what Morgan is talking I'm still not certain that Socrates is mortal, so I, that's, uh, I'm, still, I'm still trapped back on that one. But yeah, that's what he... But, that,
0: but that's, that's his program, is yeah. that every sentence you say should be able to be put into this particular form um, or else it's not logical. Huh. And in time, what he's going to do, and he does this, it's magnificent. I mean, he he expands this form more and more and more and more until at the apex, if you like, he's, he's able to say, John is the, and, and I'm trying to construct these, I'm not very good on it, um, John is the brother of Sam, Sam is the father of uh, Jill, John is the uncle of Jill. So now we've got relationships mm-hmm. which are coming down my, my syllogistic form. Mm-hmm. Um, well, doing that is absolutely, it's so far from what any medieval would allow that it's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. that's where where De Morgan ends up.
1: And this is and, oh. and 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 as we said earlier, this all is done visually, um, and also with a spiritual intent. There is a sort of a passionate. There's like there's there's it, for De Morgan. This is must be as close as he gets to prayer. Or I mean, this is this is intimately related to his experience of the divine.
0: Yes, yeah. and he's trying again. He's trying to read the mind of God. And God is a reasoning, God, God created reasoning people. And God reasons himself. And so this is definitely a way of getting into the mind of God for DeMorgan. He will never say it. He's in a secular, secular university. He's very clear. I mean, more of this dividing reason. He's very clear about what he won't talk about. Yeah. Um so that's part of what made this intriguing for me was it mm-hmm. was a, just finding it.
1: Yeah. Um I want to end the bo- uh, our discussion uh at the yep. end of the book which you end as you began. You ended you end with a reference to non-euclidean geometry and you say in the be- very beginning of the book, now, I came to this subject. I came to the study of uh, the re- Engl- uh, the study of the history of science and history of mathematics by the study of the re- English reception of non-Euclidean geometry. Um, so, w- what's the, what's the connection to non-Euclidean? Ge- First of all, what is non-Euclidean geometry? Um, uh, I remember ta- I remember our, my geometry professor in sophomore year of high school talking about it. Uh, that's about all I remember. Um, okay. And but and what's okay. the connection to the De Morgans? Um, t- okay. To the
0: um, non-Euclidean geometry, if if you go back to your high school experience and you were proving all those things, um, one of the axioms is the parallel postulate, which is can be sta- stated any number of ways, but let's say for every line and a point not on the line, you can draw one and only one line, which mm-hmm. is parallel. Um, what you don't think about much, or I certainly didn't, is that by saying that you are talking about knowing these two parallel lines are never going to intersect, no matter how far you extend them? So you're making an infinite statement, mm-hmm. and so you can't know that. You can't know that. We only have finite knowledge. If if our knowledge comes from experience, you can never say that. Um, so the parallel postulate is used to shut down people who say our knowledge comes from experience because you say, well, we do know the parallel postulate and it goes beyond any experience Mm -hmm. and therefore um, you can't have empirical knowledge Mm -hmm. or not all knowledge is empirical. Um, The trick is that at some point in the um, late 18th, early 19th century, people began to take this seriously and say, well, wait wait a second, how do you know that they'll never intersect And one way to think about that is to say, well, let's do it this way. Let's say they do intersect. Okay. Now, can I do, does that give me a contradiction? Can I generate a contradiction if they do intersect? Because I want to prove they don't. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is no, you cannot generate a contradiction. In In fact, what you're going to do is to create a whole new geometry. Uh huh. And um, so, and and one thing to keep in mind is that people had used that geometry forever, because mm-hmm. on the Earth, the lines of longitude all intersect at
1: the poles. Yeah, this take, takes um, us back to a conversation with Robin Arianrod about Thomas Harriet and his right. sort of working on that. Uh, Where where he was kind of stumbling around because he I think he Harriet realized this problem in in some way, uh, but wasn't quite there yet. Yeah,
0: yeah. Lots of people. You know. Anyway, it's a perennial problem. Yeah. It's it's in the over the course of the nineteenth century, people are beginning to take it more seriously. And the issue really is, um, is our our world the one we live in three dimensional because geometry is always two dimensional. Is our three-dimensional world really Euclidean? Mm -hmm. Because if it is, then we're reading the mind of God, and the mind of God takes us to the infinite. We're we're doing fine. If it's not, or if it might not be even worse, how do we know? Mm -hmm. And are we really reading the mind of God? Because maybe we're not. Maybe we're just doing it within our errors of calculation, Getting these parallel lines, but they're actually intersecting out there, and we don't know. And um, it's at that point that non Euclidean geometry becomes a real threat to these people who believe that with their Newtonian mathematics, they're re- reading the mind of God. And um, so to accept non Euclidean geometries as possible, that's all you have to do. Mm-hmm. Is to destroy this self-confidence that I'm reading the mind of God, mm-hmm. and for my story, it's sort of convenient that De Morgan is an old man who dies as this conversation comes up. Um, so he never really has to cope with it, and he certainly never um, never changes. But that's why non-Euclidean geometry is such a um a very complicated thing because it's not just a mathematical problem it's a yeah. theological problem in England for sure um and uh but my book can conveniently stop right there
1: what's the i am just going to finish off in asking this question i i think uh, i love the fact this is about a family um it embodies it it gives it multiple bodies. It gives ideas, multiple bodies, not just, it's not just inside one person's head. It's that transition of ideas from one person to another. And we see that everyone picks them up a little differently. And in the same generation, we in the same, in the same marriage, like Sophia and Augustus, um, why did you in the end you you were finding one box one archive after another and you felt you had to keep on moving the story forward but why did you feel that um what, what why did you feel that you had to tell all their stories what what was oh. did you see an advantage in telling this intellectual history oh. in in this way or well, what yes. was that advantage
0: yes um frank well after basically particularly if you're focused on the history of mathematics, there's this really strong internal intellectual um, message. You know, people say, well, he proved this theorem and this theorem, so now we're waiting for him to do this. And to read that, it it takes the human out completely. Yeah. I mean, it's just, there. there's this thing, it's got to work, it's you know, we may have to wait a long time for someone to get the next thing, but this is just gonna happen. And as a um in all of my work, I've I've found that unsatisfying because it's people who have these ideas. And so to to disembody it completely, I I've been fighting against my whole life. But the format of that was usually Okay, so now we have this guy doing this and this guy doing this and this guy doing this. And by the way, this guy and telling me, you know, telling you a little story about how he came to be interested in this. And on we go. Mm -hmm. Well, in this book, I realized, no, no, I'm interested in the people and their ideas are are, you know, I'm also interested in their ideas. But I'm tired of having the people be the footnote um they're not the footnote um they're the ones who are having the ideas and this story that i'm telling is a story that the characters are believe in and they live it so one easy way to see that is to see the that not only did the demorgans okay here you have demorgans their first son is william friend okay so he they're saying, look, we're bringing this guy into our family. I mean, he, he, he's very important. Their third son is Edward Lindsay. They're bringing Lindsay in as well. Um, this family of theirs, it looks like DeMorgan's, but the DeMorgan's know it's not DeMorgan's. It's, it's, this, whole, um, it's this whole history which they are carrying forward. And you asked about the divisions that I named. It was, I, I had a bit of a battle. The third section, whether I was going to call it dividing reason, which is what I did, or defending reason, because in many ways, that's what Sophia and De Morgan were doing. As their country was moving farther and farther into the 19th century, they were defending a view of reason that came from the 18th century. So that's, that's also there. Um, but I, I got tired of ideas and got more
1: interested in people.
0: And I'm, I, I like the ideas, I'm good at the ideas, but I was interested in the people.
1: My guest today has been Joan L. Richards. She's the author of Generations of Reason, a family search for meaning in post Newtonian England. Joan, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. Just a brief reminder if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher iHeartRadio, Geo Savin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.